0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're
0: going
2: to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar.
2: I'm going to kill Snow. Nothing good is safe while he's alive, and I can't make another speech about it. Now you're talking.
1: Would we care about The Hunger Games if it wasn't for Jennifer Lawrence Adam? I think we might have different answers to that question, Hamish Abernathy. How did we not get a top five ridiculous character names out of this series? There's still time. Lawrence wraps up her stint as Katniss Everdeen this weekend with the release of Mockingjay Part 2. It's the final chapter of the four-film series. Our review, plus the top five dramatic ensemble movies, and listeners cast a star in our mercifully non-existent James Bond spin-off. That and more. Zippo Leather Harness. That's not really a name, is it? <laughs> I'm going to take it because it's that good. Are we going back to Fifty Shades of Gray here? That's what it sounds like. All right, all that's ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international,
3: and classic films. One fascinating recommendation, one fascinating sounding recommendation from MUBI this week, Story of My Death. MUBI is presenting the exclusive online premiere of Albert Serra's Golden Leopard winner, billed as Casanova meets Dracula. The film's radical minimalism reimagines history, literature, and myth with a shockingly improvisatory, lackadaisical, and beautifully textured style. Sign me up for that. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of FilmSpotting can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com FilmSpotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot FilmSpotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar, or maybe you should refer to us by our Hunger Games names. You heard Zippo Leather Harness in the intro to the show. That was a wonderful creation of our very clever co producer, Sam Van Halgren. And it made me laugh so much that I was trying to come up with some on my own. And of course, when I failed, I said, Google has to have something. There has to be a Hunger Games name generator out there. And Josh, indeed there is. Okay. So. My name, according to this name generator, if I lived in Panem, would be
1: Sextus Spottiswood. <laughs> and and what do you do, Sextus? I I don't know. You're a refined personal or private investigator, I yeah, think. Yeah, I that like sounds that. Right. Okay. Here's Josh Larson oh, in Panem. Arrow Lick Privick. Oh, yak. I love it. I love it. I better not get together with a Zippo leather harness. No, could be dangerous. That could be trouble. Okay, enough
3: fun with Hunger Games names. Let's get to Hunger Games itself. Mockingjay Part 2 is the big release this weekend. Josh and I also just caught up with the so far critically acclaimed spotlight from director Thomas McCarthy. Podcast listeners will hear us share a few thoughts on that film a little later because it is the movie that inspired our top five this week. Dramatic ensemble movies. You've got in spotlight Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Stanley Tucci, Liev Schreiber, among
1: others. So that's a pretty formidable ensemble. We'll see what we can come up with in the top five later in the show. But first, our take on that other Stanley Tucci project. The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, The Legend of Caesar Fleckerman's Wigs. One way or another, this war is going to come to an end. There's only one thing you could do now to add more fire to this rebellion.
2: each other. Tonight turn your weapons to the capital
1: It's been a long night already, Adam, and mm-hmm. we've got quite a ways to go, so I'm gonna be brief with this Hunger Games Mocking Jay part two setup. The history of this franchise, at least with the show, is I was on board with the first film, made my top 10 list that year. As a matter of fact, oh, I remember. you weren't quite so warm to mm-hmm. it. But by Catching Fire, you appreciated maybe not the first film still, but what was going on in the second film. And Mockingjay Part 1, I believe you said, as we settled in for the screening we just came from, was the best in the series. Absolutely. And I'd probably agree with that. Having just seen part two, now that we're done with the series and will not be contending with Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss Everdeen in the near future, maybe in 10, 15 years when they reboot it, we'll have to tackle it then. But for now, from this vantage point, has your belated support for the series been vindicated with part two, Adam, or do you feel a little bit betrayed? I feel betrayed. I think everyone who loves this series,
3: and I really can't count myself as one of those since I do only appreciate that third installment should feel a little bit betrayed, certainly by the end of this movie, and maybe we'll get into that in some more detail. I don't know if you've had this type of experience with a movie. There are some movies you just get right into it from the beginning, you love it, it maintains your interest all the way through. Sometimes you're not on board with a movie from the very beginning, and it might redeem itself a little bit, or it gets even worse. In the case of Mockingjay Part 2, for me, I started out for the first 15 or 20 minutes, and we did just come from this movie, so... I apologize if this isn't the most critically astute assessment ever of a film. I was thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm going to like another Hunger Games movie. This is good. This is picking up right where Mockingjay Part 1 left off. It really does. But it also had that same tactile sense to it. And the opening of the movie where we start with a cold open, essentially, on Jennifer Lawrence's face after she has just survived an attack in the previous film from PETA. It feels very grounded, and it feels very much of this world, not of some dystopian world. It feels very eerie, in fact, like any woman who has just survived some kind of domestic abuse situation. And I don't think you can watch it and not help but think of that. So I was really on board with this film, and then a little bit more through it, I'm thinking, okay, it still got me, but... And then a little bit later, okay... I'm decidedly mixed on this movie. By the end, it was okay. I'm done with this film. And it wasn't just the ending of the film. It really was by the time we got there. I had really lost interest in where this film was going. Let me back up and say what had me, though, in a little bit more detail through those first 20 or 30 minutes. Again, that sense of timeliness that goes back to Mockingjay Part 1. Dystopian future, but very much having echoes of the world we live in and This film opens with a character talking about revenge, very much seeking revenge and doing whatever it takes to strike back against someone who she perceives as an oppressor. There's lots of conversations about what the rules of war are or should be and how personal it is or isn't. There's a lot of conversation about who our enemy truly is and the type of thinking that may get us into situations where we are in war. There is open talk of refugees. So... In this particular time, talking about it right now, coming off the horrible attack in Paris and all the news that's still swirling around that, this movie felt like it was somehow tapping into something very powerful and very prescient. For me, the narrative, at some point, Josh, just becomes incredibly cumbersome and clumsy. There are too many obstacles. The set objective is very clear, what Katniss Everdeen's mission is, but it becomes a series of set pieces, uninspired set pieces. It started to feel artificial in a way that the first movie very much felt to me where we're no longer seeing these characters as existing in a real world, but existing in movie world. They're characters who somehow can run in and out of bullets and manage to avoid being killed because they're the stars of the movie. It just started to feel very fake to me, for lack of a better word. And as I already said, by the time we get to the very end, I do think it completely undercuts in
1: the movie's coda everything the series has stood for up to that point. Well, I'm glad you started with a few positive things. I tried. I did that for you. You've calmed me down a bit because... 10, 15 minutes ago, I was pretty pissed. I mean, I I am a big fan of this series, and I think it was smart. The other films were smart about being prescient in ways that this one isn't. You're right. Those parallels are mm-hmm. there, but you said it. It's in all in conversations. Yes. Yeah. This thing is so talky. Everything will stop and two characters will talk about what the themes should be. I don't recall that happening that much in the other films. There would be conversations, but you would read these things in the action. You would read them in Lawrence's face or mm-hmm. line deliveries, or you would read them in the way the relationships would twist and turn among the characters. Here, it's just mostly conversations. I mean, yeah, your, your description of the, the viewing experience is right on too. it. This chips away at your loyalty if you have it for the franchise the cold open is fantastic and it knows what i mean the star in many ways is lawrence and so it knows to stick with her and katniss's personal experience as someone who is deeply ambivalent about what she has found herself in from the very first film there's that ambivalence Mm -hmm. and she acts on instinct She acts on this inner sense of of her character that even she isn't quite sure. She's someone who's still being formed as a person. And so there's something thrilling about watching that happen. And here, by the time we get to this, there are some actions she takes that you don't quite believe. It seems to contradict other ways we've seen the character and by that ending which we won't give away but I would love to talk about maybe when we get some feedback um, that final scene absolutely undercuts what was a character who I'll just say was irrespective of gender roles in interesting ways Mm -hmm. and forming her own identity as a person and as a young woman and the way they end this thing is like a slap in the face to all that came before as far as that's concerned um, I, so were there any things that are good and then I'll get to more of my complaints. I will say that I think it is dedicated to a certain regard for loss and remorse mm-hmm. and that ambivalence and also trauma, you know, the trauma we see in that opening scene for sure it pays attention to, to the deaths of its characters, which is another thing that the first film had for quite a while, but almost to the point where It happens to its detriment. They seem to be, as those plot convolutions come into play, I see the reason for doing it. They seem to want to stick to this not going the blockbuster route of a big action, set piece, victorious finale, and then we have the party, and then we end. But what they've chosen to do instead of that is just unnecessarily convoluted and, again, contradictory to what came before. I do think it's
3: unnecessarily convoluted. I think if this was a spoiler review, we could pinpoint exactly where some of the failings are in terms of the construction and some of the decisions that are made. There is a huge showdown at the end of this film that leads to the way everything wraps up for this finale that there's no actual rational explanation for why it would have even happened, why the character that would have needed to precipitate that action would have done it. Mm -hmm. It's completely inexplicable. And yet there's a lot of those decisions. I think it extends to some of the characters as well, specifically a character like PETA. And I think Josh Hutcherson here does a really good job. You talk about trauma. I mean, he does have to embody a character who is just a walking wound. Right. And I think he pulls it off. What lets him down, unfortunately, is the screenplay and the direction to an extent where he basically is one moment either a dangerous lunatic who is a menace to everyone around him. Or he's this sage spouting very thoughtful wisdom and calming everyone down as the story needs him
2: to be, basically. When they used the venom on me, they they would show me pictures of my life. At first, they they all blurred together, but now...
0: Now I can sort them out a little. Like the the ones that they changed, they have this this quality. It's like they're
2: they're shiny. They they've been glossed over. You should get some rest.
1: I'm going to defend the characterization there because we we do get this sense he's almost schizophrenic because of the torture he's undergone. So, I know. So there is. There is the character development I think it that justifies too it. much though. Well, but it's also it's also how it's managed within the narrative and the screenplay where it does come off as jarring. So it makes sense within the framework of what's happened to these characters, but the way it's handled, I agree, is not is not very well done. The performance also, Hutcherson is quite good in doing something that's that's pretty complicated. And Lawrence does what she can to carry this thing. I mean, there's what no can. there's no lack of commitment, which is what I accuse Daniel Craig of having in Spectre. I was going to say. This is her fourth <laughs> film, and she's, she's as there as she was in the first okay, one. Okay, see, I was
3: going to disagree with that a little bit, Josh. I wondered how you felt about Lawrence because I think – She's asked to do too much heavy lifting here, and she has some really clunker scenes, especially towards the end. But if you're going to accuse Daniel Craig, inspector, of feeling a little bit too much like, what, a middle-aged football coach? Yeah. A tired football coach? I think he just lost another game uh, since last week. (laughs) Can can I say that Jennifer Lawrence comes off a little bit here like maybe a dissatisfied yoga instructor? I don't know. (laughs) Something because it feels that way to me. I really noticed it here, and I do think it's just because maybe the camera— is relying on her too much. There is a spark that was in Mockingjay 1 and was in the two previous films even that I didn't feel here at all. There's a real absence. There's something that's not there behind those close-ups that we experienced in the other films. And I think where it comes from, Josh, is that this gets back to your point that I totally agree with in terms of the movie being too clunky in its exposition, having to explain too much, characters saying the theme rather than actually just acting and us drawing our own conclusions, she's a very passive character here. that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that's what really turned me off more than anything, and that's also what undercuts the Katniss Everdeen character that we've come to really appreciate so far. There are so many instances where she's basically just a dupe, and that could be interesting, but they don't do anything interesting with it. And when she's not being a dupe, and she actually is acting on her own, acting on her instincts, doing what she wants to do, She has no plan. She has no strategy. Everything that happens to her is dictated either by chance
1: or by other people. I really feel like she's a pawn here in a way that is not compelling at all. Yeah, but that's been the character throughout, and she's always acted on instinct. I'm okay with this. As a matter of fact, I think this is one of those instances where Mockingjay Part Two is trying to do something non-blockbustery and interesting, and just can't pull it off. And I'm sort of torn here because do I want to give it the benefit of the doubt, of of you know praise it for not giving us this heroine who is going to be victorious in a traditional Mm -hmm. expected way, but give us someone... It's going back to trauma. She's withdrawn and she's passive because she's deeply wounded. And Mm -hmm. all this installment does is pour more pain upon her. So again... In terms of envisioning the character, that makes sense. And that is why perhaps the camera does linger on her for a long time to give us this sense of, of you know, the, the ending of the film has a very interesting maybe 10 minutes before the terrible epilogue that is, it's just a recovery These are sequences of recovery. But now what happens there? There are some of her worst scenes as well Mm -hmm. because it's only expecting her to communicate all of this. And she does the opposite of what Craig does. So if you're at all exhausted by being in the fourth film in a franchise, you may go one of two ways. You can give a performance that Perhaps he was completely into it but registered to be inspector as disinterested. Or you can give her a performance that Lawrence does in the last 20 minutes here, which is too interested. And she starts oh, she goes for it. Out. I mean, she goes for it and in a way that does not work for the character. No. It doesn't work for the film. But it's hard to falter for that when they're putting the entire franchise finale on her in a single scene by herself.
3: You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, that closes out that franchise. As far as we know, it opens this weekend. In terms of positives, can I just give you two words? Jenna Malone. Oh, yeah. She's fun. I mean, she's the secret weapon of this film. She was good in the last one, too. But she really does get the best scenes in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. I wish that her character had much more of a developed role, and we could have seen a little bit more of that spunk which really isn't a good word for what she brings because she's also someone who's traumatized but she's on the opposite end of the jennifer lawrence character who has gotten more internal and introspective about it she is sort of lashing out Mm -hmm. at everyone and also through some pharmaceutical aids as we learn by watching her character but i did want to ask you about something i'm curious for your thought on this because i joked at the end of the film and i won't say what Prompted specifically the joke because it will give away the ending of the film that we hate so much. But one thing that has always struck me about this series and not sat very well with me, and then it really doesn't sit well with me by the end here of this film, and it gets back to her gender role, if you will, something you brought up a little bit ago. This notion that she is this non sexualized heroine. I've seen some people praise this series for having a non sexualized female character as its lead, and I'm completely behind that. But what strikes me, Josh, is that this is a series, though, about a heroine who is in love with two different men. It certainly tries to draw out the fact that that is a huge component of this series. Who is she going to end up with? So she's agonizing very much over which of these two men she really wants to be with and truly loves. At the same time, if I'm not mistaken, this series started with her as being a teenager. And teenagers tend to be somewhat hormonal and act on their instincts, Josh. And she's asexual to a point where I wonder if it's really a strength of the movie or actually in some way something that limits her femininity, actually takes away from her as a female
1: character. So, boy, I, you know, what bothered me in terms of that with Mockingjay Part 2 is that There are moments of trying to make her more of a sexual character that are out of line with what we've seen before. So it's not to me so much of whether or not she is a character who has sexual urges. It's just that. Why are we seeing it now? Mm-hmm. And and it, this is a very minor part of part two, but it does stand out because we didn't see that aspect at all. And so for, I liked it for, for that me, reason, because yeah. I felt like we were finally
3: I mean, seeing a real person, a flesh think, and blood
1: character. You know, I think up until this film, too, they have handled the love triangle fairly well by giving it just enough screen time just enough to make it right i mean they didn't yeah. play it up as some sort of and here they try to put a bow and here on here they it. <laughs> right they try to put a bow on it and explain and, it all and they use sexuality as a way to do that that i don't think works i don't think it's true to the character mm-hmm. i mean this is related to something that that i thought was a fall off in this installment as well and that is the costume design not so much these elaborate costumes that we get in the Capitol that the Capitol residents wear but in katniss's costume design you know there there are very telling scenes right in the first film where her mother tries to put her in a dress and she's used she goes out and hunts in the woods Mm -hmm. so she's used to wearing whatever works for that and eventually she ends up in the games wearing something that's more like what she would wear to hunt and she that fits her identity in a complicated again ambivalent way then once she gets to the city in catching fire the the dresses that they try to impose upon her even at one point a wedding dress right And the way that she and in cooperation with Cinna, the designer played by Lenny Kravitz, subvert these dresses that they're supposed to put her in. And then in Mockingjay Part 1, how this symbol she's being created as, the Mockingjay, what are the costumes for that? So that's all interesting stuff that plays with ideas of symbolism and gender and Mm -hmm. fashion design. And it's kind of dropped here too. It is, I mean, yeah. there's there's a little bit of a nod later on when she does adopt her official Mockingjay costume again. And I thought when they hide out in a shop in the capital city and meet one of the designers there yeah. that they might, might have get been something. doing something like that. We and don't. It's, it's almost, I mean, there is so much here where I, I'm starting to think, did the people involved completely forget what they had done that was interesting in the other films or... Was I under some sort of haze where I found things mm-hmm. in the other two films that aren't really there? Now, that, that's how confused I, I, think I am there's a about certain, this series finale. I think there's a
3: certain fatigue that sets in. And maybe the artists, some of them behind this, did feel it. And they felt overwhelmed by the process of having to wrap this whole series up. It just feels very much like they were hitting certain notes that they felt like they had to hit to get to the end of the film so that we could all walk out feeling a certain way about Katniss Everdeen and this world. On the note of gender and some of the female characters in this film, I will say it is a great pleasure to watch a movie full of soldiers... That are played by female characters, something we certainly don't see in most Hollywood blockbusters from Julianne Moore as the president to Patina Miller, who's a commander that I don't believe we've met before in the previous films. Gwendolyn Christie, Natalie Dormer as Cressida, who is kind of the director of this propaganda squad. She's great every time she's on screen. Michelle Forbes as well as a new character. She plays a lieutenant with Katniss's squad. I did feel a little bit bad. As I was walking out of the movie, I was talking to another critic who, it turns out, had similar feelings about the movie as we did, and especially about the ending. And I brought up a scene leading up to the ending that I thought was terrible. Again, where characters are explaining something, they're talking about something, they're reading something specifically. When you feel like there would have been a more cinematic way to express that, without spoiling anything, where I started to feel bad was it did occur to me that depending on when this film was exactly shot... As it relates to Philip Seymour Hoffman's death, I wonder if actually that was a casualty of his untimely death. The fact that they couldn't shoot certain scenes with him and had to manufacture a scene that involved his presence without his presence. And so I don't know if that's true or not. I still really wish that they would have found a more cinematic, more interesting way to express what they needed to express there. But that seems to be for us. A larger problem with this film in general. Mocking Part 2 is currently out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with
1: our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Big casting news up ahead as the film spotting poll reveals the listener's choice for who should play the son or daughter of Bond. Then Adam and I join the chorus of praise that's greeted the new journalism drama Spotlight. Stay with us.
2: Not cracked with my mind. What if I surrender? I accept. The police. You don't get to do what you did and just lock yourself up. Shit, I'd give you props if he wasn't my brother. Or if he deserved it.
3: When we get around to top five scenes that take place in the trunk of a car, Josh, and we surely will, I'm predicting maybe episode 782. That one's definitely making my list. Out of sight, though, in the Pantheon could be tough. (laughs) That's true. We may not have as many choices as I thought. Welcome back to Film Spotting. That clip, part of a great scene from last year's Film Spotting Golden Brick winner, Blue Ruin, came to us from writer-director Jeremy Sunye. The Golden Brick is something we've awarded for the past seven years. It goes to a favorite overlooked or underseen film by a new or newly established filmmaker. We do require a distinct directorial vision or artistic ambition that is among the vaguely Criteria for the award we've been applying. We will get into this year's Golden Brick shortlist on next week's show. It's our Thanksgiving episode. No new review or new top five next week, but we will revisit the reviews we gave to a few of this year's nominees, giving you a chance to further catch up with these good films. The following week, we do have a special Hitchcock blind spotting show scheduled. It's something we're tying in with the upcoming Chicago release of the new documentary Hitchcock Truffaut made by the film critic and filmmaker Kent Jones of film comment fame among other publications and works. That actually doesn't come out here in Chicago until Christmas. I think it's opening at the music box, but we are going to stick with our planned show here for that weekend of December 4th where you'll hear my conversation with Kent Jones about the movies. And we're going to share a top five I'm excited about I certainly don't have time to cram in any last-minute reading for Come this top on. five. We've got two weeks. Yeah, two you weeks. We can you're knock right. out five new books. And Why then? not? It is going to be our top five film books. Over the years of doing this show, going back to the very beginning, ten years ago, we've often gotten that question in the mailbag hey, I'm really starting to get into cinema, I'm enjoying the show, I want to learn more, what books do you recommend? We have shared those recommendations via different platforms, like our website and our forum over the years, but actually never devoted a show to it. And you'll also hear Kent Jones's picks in that interview. So top five film books, we'll talk to Kent Jones about Hitchcock Truffaut, and then we are going to make up for one of our blind spots and talk about a Hitchcock movie that we've never seen. Last night, Josh, preparing for the show, I posted on Twitter whether or not our listeners would prefer to hear us talk about The Wrong Man from 1956 or 1942 Saboteur, and The Wrong Man did emerge Victoria. So great that's the film we haven't seen. That's one of the Hitchcock films that we both haven't seen that we're going to dive
1: into. Should be fun. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I, You know, you could say there's so many new releases this time of year, but it's... It's never bad to catch up with a Hitchcock film, especially one you haven't seen. We've had
3: some other rumblings about this next bit of news, Josh. I think we've hinted at it, maybe even thrown out a date, but we want to make it official. We are going to have another Film Spotting live show. It's going to happen at the main stage this year where we've had previous live shows, and it will be another Film Spotting rap party. So we will look back on the year in cinema that was 2015. Michael Phillips is in. We will also have another special guest in for that panel tickets will be available soon we just want you to mark your calendars for now more information will be on our website and we'll dispense that via social media but january 9th saturday january 9th it's going to be an evening show
1: these are a lot of fun too this would be the third wrap party we've done Mm -hmm. and it's just it's a great time of year when everybody's catching up with the best of the previous year and we try to have fun with it by doing a little bit of different awards, yeah. I guess we give for different categories, most moving moment or best entrance, just just random things that stuck out from the year. And we're going to work in some audience participation too. So it's, it's a really good time. Yeah. I hope that The live shows have gotten better
3: as we've done more of them. I think we've done four of them now, and we try to take what we've learned and apply it and improve the shows. And we have talked behind the scenes about how we can come up with some new categories and maybe get a little bit more listener participation. So we hope to see many of you there at the main stage again Saturday, January 9th. More information to come. Now, before we share our poll results and let listeners cast our Imaginary Bond spinoff, Josh, we thought... It was only appropriate to give the last word on last week's big James Bond extravaganza to a listener and share his voicemail. We just jammed so much into last week's show where we reviewed Spectre, had our special guest Chris Clement call in to be our Bond expert. I think you actually referred to it as our bondage party. Is that true? that that might have happened what's twitter for for if not for regrettable tweets <laughs> exactly so chris was there we had our bondage party we shared our top 5 bond tropes and it was a lot of fun despite the fact that i contributed almost nothing to it except the really dubious claim that sheena easton's for your eyes only is actually the best bond theme so there you go Have we you really been didn't want to hear that more from all week <laughs> all week <laughs> long just on repeat huh maybe so it was a fun show but we fit so much in that we couldn't quite squeeze in this great voicemail that came to us from longtime listener Ben Flanagan. He's going to share his favorite Bond
0: stuff. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Ben Flanagan from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I'm really excited to hear what you guys think of Spectre and James Bond in general. I love the new movie, and I've done a deep dive in James Bond recently, and I wanted to share with you my favorite James Bond stuff. My favorite Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. Worst Bond movie, Another Day. Underrated Bond movie, Moonraker. Best Bond Girl, Miss Penny, Best Bond Song, Nobody Does It Better, from The Spy Who Loved Me. Best Bond Poster, For Your Eyes Only. Best Bond Villain, Alec Trevelyan, or 006, from Goldeneye. Best Bond Director, Martin Campbell. Best Bond Opening Sequence, Goldeneye. Best Bond Car, the Aston Martin DB5 from any of the Bond movies. Come on. Best Bond Henchman, Jaws. Best Bond Gadget, Jetpack, from Thunderball. I mean, it's a jetpack. Come on. And Best Bond all of them. I know it's a cheat, but they never cast a bad Bond. They all made great movies. They all made a few duds, but that's it. That's my favorite Bond stuff. Thanks guys. Keep up the great work and roll tide.
3: Some contrarian stuff there from Ben, some conventional wisdom from Ben as well. We did hear a lot of listeners who wrote in saying, come on, it's a jet pack. The jetpack from Thunderball has to be among the best Bond stuff. So, again, our thanks to Ben and to all our listeners who helped out with that show. A couple weeks back, in anticipation of Spectre and that Top 5, we somehow came up with this question. Who would you cast in the non-existent Bond spinoff, Son slash Daughter of Bond? We say non-existent. But that was before we received this note from listener, another longtime listener and friend of the show, Jason Eakin in L.A., who told us this idea has actually already been done in the 1991 cartoon, obviously titled James Bond, Jr. Bond. James
2: Bond, Jr. No one can stop him, but scum always tries to
1: they beat us to it i mean here here we thought we were going to produce a blockbuster franchise and
3: uh, no no well now they can just bring that cartoon back and they'll have a hit on their hands jason continued adam aren't you still in your early 30s you should have been you couldn't just let that go You should have been at the perfect age for this, like I was when I watched it. Two notes on this magical spinoff from Jason. One, apparently being Bond's nephew allows this kid to use the junior, which is weird. Maybe the season one cliffhanger involves a paternity test. Two, James Bond Jr. chases scum around the world. Sam Mendes eat your heart out. I did notice watching it. I mean, if you wanted to get into this poll question here and who should be son or daughter mm-hmm. of Bond, James Bond Jr. looks a lot like Miles Teller, one of the options. A little bit. Yeah, He's <laughs> Well, more like Miles Teller than Saoirse Ronan. It's true. Okay. So with that, let's get to the options for who you could cast as the son of or daughter of Bond. They were Nicholas Holt. Jack O'Connell, who we loved in Start Up last year, Emma Watson of Harry Potter fame, Miles Teller, Alicia Vikander, Saoirse Ronan, and Other. We did give you the opportunity to write in if you didn't appreciate any of those candidates. Josh, how did
1: it come out? A tie in last place. Miles Teller received 4%, as did Other. I think Michael Sarah was one of the suggestions (laughs) there. Oh, we'll get to a few more. Okay. Yeah, Michael Sarah did come up somehow. Nicholas Holt had 8% of the vote. Jack O'Connell had 15% of the vote. And then is at the very top, we're going to have to break this down. Emma Watson, 22.72% of the vote. Two votes away from her, but beating her out. Saoirse Ronan, 22.91% of the vote. But that means Alicia Vikander wins with 23.74% of the vote.
3: Do you think it's because of Ex Machina that everyone is on this Alicia Vicander kick?
1: Yeah, that could be. Yeah. I mean, she's I mean, we, great. in that And film. we were
3: we talked a lot about it and her performance this year. So mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe we did have an influence on it. Josh, we heard from Brett Marmo in Edinburgh, Scotland. He says, having just seen Brooklyn, I'm convinced Saoirse Ronan could do pretty much anything. So she gets my vote and she'd be ideal for the current iteration of Bond. The way she can command emotions while keeping a certain stillness would play well off Craig and she can kick arse. But what about the other Bond's? Connery's muscular bond is easy. Jack O'Connell. Oh, I like where Brett's going here. Moore's bond needs someone happy to be a bit ridiculous. I could easily see pigeons doing double takes as Nicholas Holt happily drove his gondola slash hovercraft with an imprisoned living blood bag attached to it (laughs) through Piazza San Marco. (laughs) It's a Mad Max Fury Road reference for those of you who may not have caught that. For Dalton, you'd need a steely coolness. Another easy one, Alicia Vikander. Brosnan brought a boozy Irish charm to the role which
1: Miles Teller could both match and rail against. Ben H. from Houston, Texas said, My vote is for Alicia Vikander. The offspring of Bond needs to be charming, beautiful, sly, witty, and yet dangerous on the drop of a dime. I think Vikander proved all that in Ex Machina, even though she was playing a machine. Despite having to temper her emotions, Vikander in that film was beautifully seductive, yet always had a bit of menace, like a caged jungle cat ready to pounce. If she can do that while also having to underplay her emotional state, then I think playing Jane Bond is an easy feat. Also, (laughs) if this film does get made, please don't call her Jane Bond. Lee Rice Epstein also added, you can build the whole sequel
3: off of casting Vikander, give directing slash writing duties to Alex Garland, cast Oscar Isaac as son of M and Donald Gleason as son of Q and the house from Ex Machina would be an amazing lair. I love our list. Perfect. They are so, so creative. I love where that's going. I would definitely watch that next Bond movie. And I think Ben H made a very compelling case there for Alicia Vikander. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners who voted for her were thinking along similar lines, but I'm going to correct him. I don't think she was playing a robot. She was playing a robot. Is playing a
1: human. All along, she was a human. <laughs> That's right. It just blew my mind. Franco, as male, said, I went with other because Oscar Isaac needs to be integral to every movie. Now, I know he's 36, but he could pass for maybe 28 years old, which would mean that Bond fathered a baby in his late teens. This would be completely plausible within the world of the character. Isaac's ethnicity is half Guatemalan and half Cuban. Bond is a globetrotter, and you know he dances the horizontal mambo with the local ladies everywhere he goes, so boom. What's that? what's the horizontal mambo josh you'll get it think about it for a Mm. little bit oscar isaac in son of bob okay andy from scunthorpe uk You've got some seriously
3: great female talent on this list, and my initial instinct is to go for either Ronan or Vikander. But after considering it a little, I realized I can't bear to hand either of those actresses over to the Bond franchise, knowing how it typically treats its female characters. I didn't like Spectre, and that's mainly due to how, when it comes to women, the franchise still refuses to be progressive. So I don't trust Bond with any of these excellent women, daughter or not, because I'm sure they'd still end up an empty shell in a pretty dress. Which brings me to the men. Miles Teller just can't see it I like him not for this Holt has proved himself to be quite the chameleon recently with Mad Max Fury Road and he'd be great but what I really like to see is Jack O'Connell playing Bond's son as his character from start up Bond with a dirty working class son in tow would be amazing shake it don't stir it put that pansy vodka away and get your sends an effing pint <laughs> I don't think I did a great O'Connell impression there, but eh, it's as close as I get to
1: that accent from startup. But I like where your head's at, Andy. Keith Geiger said, Daniel Craig is 47. Emily Blunt is 32. Both could play five years older and younger. Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt. Please, I'll promise to watch a new Bond movie if Emily Blunt takes over. Tom Morris says, why all white actors? Bond has slept all over the world. Why not John Boyega. Or Zoe Kravitz? Good question. Peter in Boston. John Boyega. I'm sure he can handle the action, and it looks like his part in the upcoming Star Wars film will further demonstrate his abilities. And I really liked how he showed emotional growth in Attack the Block. Using the Harrison Ford model, who says he can't handle multiple franchises? Okay, I'm on board. David Enna from Charlotte says, I popped in an other vote for Lupita Nyong'o.
3: She would be amazing, and she deserves this sort of role. Okay, she's 32. That blew my mind, by the way, that she's 32 when I read that. Because, as David says, she looks about 18, and indeed she does. But she has an amazing physical presence, I agree with that as well, a must for any 007. If this film were ever made, it would be so much better with Bond versus a kick-ass daughter. Lupita Nyong'o,
1: of course, nominated and I believe won. Did she not? Yep. Best supporting
3: actress for 12 Years a Slave.
1: Very good actress. One more here from Ryan from Utah. Say what you will about Bond films. The fact that they haven't stooped so low to this soapy plot is a testament to the immense success and longevity of the franchise. So I'll throw some heavy shade on this poll and vote for Seth Green. Because let's face it, Dr. Evil's son is always more fun than any overly dramatized, illegitimate offspring of James hmm. Bond. Okay. He's got a point. I'll throw out two other names that were popular
3: in the assortment of other choices. One of them was Tatiana Maslany, who is foreign to me because I do not watch the show Orphan Black, but that's where she is best known, I believe. And also Taryn Egerton, who people would know from, among other things, Kingsman, The Secret Service, a movie from earlier this year that looked horrible. looked kind of like Son of Bond. Right. That's a good point. And yet most people I know and most film critics I know actually kind of liked it. So it's a movie I do feel like I need to try to catch up with here before the end of the year. So that was our fun with Son and Daughter of Bond. That brings us to more fun. And the votes there for The Force Awakens, John Boyega, does help us transition to this week's poll question. It's one we did last year around this time. Which... Non-Star Wars holiday spectacle, of course, Star Wars was not part of last year's question, but other than
1: Star Wars, which holiday spectacle are you most likely to see? Your choices are. Creed, the spectacle, the spawn of Apollo Creed and the studio debut of Fruitville Station director Ryan Coogler. And if this movie is ahead, it's only a matter of time before daughter of James Bond gets the green light. Good point. It's kind of the same thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? The Good Dinosaur, this is Pixar's second film of 2015, trying to follow up the success of Inside Out. In the Heart of the Sea. The spectacle here is director Ron Howard. He's hitting the high seas with Chris Hemsworth to tell the true story that inspired Moby Dick. Joy is the latest from David O. Russell. He's reuniting with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro. It's a multi-generation story that includes Lawrence wielding a shotgun. Sisters, The Spectacle. Comedy Explosions, courtesy of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, is estranged sisters who return to their childhood home when it goes up for sale. And... We will offer you the option of none of the above. The spectacle here, you alone with your popcorn and your Ingmar Bergman marathon. Where are you going, Josh? Boy, I think I wasn't going to go with Joy. I, yeah. know I, I know I mentioned Sisters early on in the year, something I was really looking forward to. I didn't even know about Joy at that point hmm. and saw the trailer. It seems to be built around and for Jennifer Lawrence. So maybe that will redeem yeah. Mockingjay Part 2. Maybe. I'm going none of the above.
3: Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip. It's coming out. You're probably going to see it, too. That's the sad <laughs> no, thing. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. I saw the preview for it before a kids movie I took my children to just last weekend. What mm-hmm. would that kids peanuts. movie have been? Yes, you we saw, saw peanuts. the Peanuts movie, a perfectly enjoyable. Yeah, people have liked the Yeah, Pe- it was either. fine. And the kids enjoyed it as well. And I had to suffer through, among other trailers, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip. It made me feel so sorry for so many actors, so many fine actors in that film and really actually just made me feel sorry for humanity at large it looks
1: that terrible don't feel sorry for them i know They're i'm not the target audience their checks <laughs> hey, you're right you're the guy who saw what was it transylvania 2 i, I mean, did hotel transylvania 2 yeah yeah you're gonna you'll be at it. no alvin and the chipmunks no i i don't care if this holiday season i don't care if my
3: two youngest sons begged me and said daddy all we want for christmas mm-hmm. is to go see alvin uh-huh. and the chipmunks it's not happening. All right. I don't love them that much. We'll it looks see. that terrible, though. It did give me this ancillary benefit of watching my daughter Sophie, who I've mentioned is the budding film snob, wants to be a director, is in love with singing in the rain, and she's trying to broaden her horizons. Watching her watch trailers like Alvin and the Chipmunks and just openly <laughs> mock them and then mock her brothers for thinking that they're actually kind Aww. of funny.
1: I, I like it. I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm good with my daughter becoming a snob. What can I say? They'll give you those puppy dog eyes, those two little ones, say, come on, let's go to Elvin the Chipper. You'll go. You'll yeah,
3: go. maybe I will. Joy, if I had to pick, Joy would be my answer as well, even though I don't get excited about upcoming David O. Russell films, but maybe because of Jennifer Lawrence. That's the movie that does intrigue me the most on that list. But... I'm not overly intrigued by any of them. I can't say that Creed or The Good Dinosaur really grabs me. As much as I do love Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, I'm not going to rush out to see what they're doing on the big screen necessarily. And In the Heart of the Sea, I've had to suffer through that trailer a couple of times, and it's just not really inspiring me, Josh, to want to run out to the theater over the holidays. So with that uninspired list, we want to know. What you think which of these holiday movies are you most likely to see vote now at filmspotting.net if you leave a comment and we hope you do please let us know where you're listening from
0: i know there's things you cannot tell me
1: but also know there's a story here and i think everybody will hear about it do you think your paper has the resources to take that on
0: i do do you the Boston priests molested kids in six different parishes over the last thirty years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight. Guys, listen. Everybody's going to be interested in this. A clip from the trailer
3: there for the new film Spotlight, which just opened in Chicago and other select cities last weekend. And although the movie is certainly deserving of a full review. We don't really have time for it. I also think it's a safe bet that by the time we get to our end of year top 10 films of the year, between the two of us And Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias, our usual roundtable. I have a feeling this movie is going to come up again. So I don't know that we need to really dive in and share all of our thoughts on this movie, though you did write a review of it over at your website. If listeners want to read more, they can certainly do that at larsononfilm.com. The question I want to ask you about Spotlight, which is a movie about the investigation by the Boston Globe into the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal at the end of the 1990s into the early 2000s is when the movie takes place. Was the ensemble, as it inspired our top five this week looking at ensemble movies, was the ensemble, in fact, one of the real strengths of this movie for you?
1: Absolutely. And what was interesting about it is that you have among this ensemble, not completely, but a number of them are actors who've been known to... Chew the scenery a little yeah. bit. Stanley Tucci. I mean, yeah, Keaton. Tucci at the top. Liev Schreiber Keaton definitely mm-hmm. does it. Even someone like John Slattery, who you know, I was great in Mad Men, but precisely because you knew every one of his scenes, he was just going to take hold of it and do something fun and exciting. So to see each of these guys work in conjunction with actors like Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams, and all be united to serve the story first primarily rather than necessarily their character or their performances uh, was really refreshing and it's just nice to see so you know someone there are going to be people who say oh so glad Keaton did this after the Birdman detractors you know mm-hmm. but what I like about seeing it is why'd Birdman, you look at me when you said that well you know mm-hmm. eh, you like to run in that crowd. The shoe fits. But Birdman was exciting for me to see him on that high wire and doing something that you were a little on edge about. Where's he going to go? And that's maybe the definitive Keaton quality. But it's great to see that he has this range and can do this. And he's just so good as the lead editor of this group he's more of like a, a cajoler the way he yeah. approaches his sources and uh, you know buying him a beer yeah. or just talking friendly and until like he hits him with that really was hard say, question i had that same reaction where nobody's
3: better in the movies at walking up to someone and being like hey so how about the red Sox last <laughs> night hey you want <laughs> right. a beer oh by the way yes. what can you tell me about this uh-huh. what about the i mean he he nails that in a way that you absolutely believe that these people end up giving him information, or if they don't give him information and are put off by him being so
1: forward, they still are his friend and they're going to be valuable to him somewhere down the road. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's he just nails that so perfectly. I think my favorite performance might be Lee Schreiber's. Though. Me too. As the editor who comes into the paper, he's yeah. the outsider. He doesn't get a Jewish, ton of screen time. From, no, but his every scene is so perfect, and he's integral in forcing his own staff to face their denial that Mm -hmm. they've had about what's been going on in this city. But Schreiber brings this, he's, I described him as the news editor's grim reaper because he's this guy and he's a compilation of when I used to be at newspapers of the best editors that I knew where they just seem to have the weight of the world on them, but they're going to do the job anyway. And they know that it's, it's a tough job. They're, they're usually carrying, bad news mm-hmm. a lot of the investigative stuff is unearthing bad news but they see it as their job to get it out there and so there's a weariness but also a sense of purpose mm-hmm. and direction and he manages to convey all that without making it heroic
0: Law well, i had to know that's why he had the reaction because he knew there were others i think that's the bigger story but the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved that's all they do Indicator. Are you telling me that, that if we run a start with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... Mike! We'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down.
1: This is a nuts and bolts journalism story. It doesn't trump up any sort of heroic strain because Mm -hmm. that's not how these things get done. And the whole cast is true to that.
3: Yeah, they really are. And I really agree with everything you said. I think this movie, and I know this is going to sound like a kiss of death to some people out there, not a compliment. And I certainly do not follow the award season or really care how the award season goes, but I can't imagine right now. I know it's just November. I can't imagine this movie doesn't win best picture and hmm. I would be okay with that. I think for once a best picture front runner if it is spotlight it deserves to be in that position. It is a movie that doesn't carry itself at all like the prestige picture that I think a lot of people may go in thinking it is or After they hear some of the reviews and some of these glowing comments and hear that it's a contender for best picture, maybe they'll make that assumption. You're totally right. It's a nuts and bolts getting dirty. This is how we do journalism. This is how we tell a story. Everybody is equal in this ensemble. Everybody gets really the same amount of screen time except of Schreiber, but he's the editor. He's not the guy who's digging the story. Yeah, he's he's the, the guy they have to come to every once in a while, but everybody else really is a role player here, and they all play a valuable role. And it's interesting because I did see that Sam reviewed this movie on Letterboxd. He saw it recently, too, and said how he really liked it, but did catch himself being caught a little bit in the fact that he knew where it was going. And sometimes that happens with hmm. movies where if you know... It's based on a true story, and you know kind of what the outcome is, that sometimes you might catch yourself, if the movie isn't really working for you as much as you hope it would, you might catch yourself not being caught up in the suspense maybe as much as you could. That's not the experience I had with it at all, and maybe it's because I didn't follow the Boston Globe investigation. I didn't follow their stories. I remember certainly when the story broke and the news it made, but it's not about how this ends up. At all, It really is solely about the process, and it's about these little moments along the way, some of the little achievements that they carve away at to tell this story, to do something really good and profound. And I did watch this movie via screener link. It was hooked up to my television, and at one point, Josh, in the film, my computer started buffering. It was the only time this happened. Otherwise, perfectly crisp viewing experience. Near the end of the film, there's a moment where a character's running to a courthouse, and... It started buffering and I almost broke my laptop. (laughs) I was that eager to see what would happen in that moment and where this was going to go because it really is about not only the process, but it's about these characters. It's about the people they're trying to serve without the movie really going overboard and trying to overplay the victim stories. And it certainly could. It could and it would be okay if it did because they're horrible stories and they're stories that deserve to be told. But he lets –
1: the process play out. He lets the reporters do their job and those stories are part of that process. That's absolutely it. I mean, there was suspense for me because of those little achievements you're talking about, but also because I was so invested in the characters, as you said, who these reporters are trying to serve. The movie handles the victim Mm -hmm. element of this story so well, I think. And that was crucial to me. And also is used to do exactly what you're talking about. There's a deflating moment near the end where, you know, I guess it's not a spoiler because we know that they exposed this. But Ruffalo takes the paper, the story, when it finally comes out and brings it to Tucci's lawyer, who is one of his sources. As Mm -hmm. kind of this – it could have been that triumphant, like, we got him. Didn't we do a great job? And Tucci kind of shrugs, you know, and says, nice work. And um, now on to the next one, basically. And but what what does he do? Tucci goes to have a meeting with some new victims. Exactly. Yeah. And on to the Ruffalo, next one. And the, and the movie didn't just not get kind rid of, of evil in the world. Exactly. You know, because you investigated and that's, this. That's not only, you know, so revealing and honest and truthful, but also nicely deflating mm-hmm. of what a bad movie about this could have been.
3: Yeah. And I do think there's some nice touches with the camera that Thomas McCarthy brings for a movie that is very much about the ensemble and the dialogue. And I think would rightfully be called a talky kind of movie, not an action movie. There is still a really nice visual strategy at play. I don't want to get into it too much here because, again, I think I'm going to have some other opportunities to talk about this movie. So that's Spotlight. We are joining the chorus of Hosannas for this film out now in limited release. If you see it, we'd love
1: to know what you think. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We're going to keep talking ensemble performances when we come back. The Film Spotting Top 5 Dramatic Ensemble Movies is next. Stay with us.
2: I Desert sun, the ever-endless sea, not a drop of blue or white, is where well, it shouldn't be. I'm a wheel going round, in a mirror house, I with no way out, what you have feels about holding on to everything that's coming and gone. We mm-hmm.
3: Donation and thank you time. We'll get to three donors and three great bits of email we got as well, Josh, from those. Very supportive, very generous listeners. But we want to start by mentioning our featured artists this week, The Dead Weather, from their new album Dodge & Burn. They're a Nashville-based supergroup of sorts. Jack White, Alison Mosshart of The Kills, plus members of Queens of the Stone Age and The on Tours. If you want more information about them, you can find it at thedeadweather.com. We start our donations off with a longtime listener, Liston in Chicago, who it seems got some benefit, Josh, from our
1: recent review of Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin. This email is a little delayed, but I wanted to send you a note after checking out The Assassin recently. I've been listening to the show for about eight years now. Is that possible? But The Assassin was one of those movies that really highlighted the total film spotting experience and why I value the show so much. I first heard of the movie during the preview for the Chicago Film Fest, and while I missed it at the fest, I was able to catch up at the music box. This is exactly the type of film that I would not have sought out if not for film spotting. More importantly, it is the type of film that I may not have appreciated half as much if I wasn't able to listen to your takes on the podcast after viewing. The Assassin is at points beautiful, haunting, confusing, and yes, sometimes boring. I left the theater in a daze and was unable to put my finger on how I felt. You guys came to my rescue and helped me understand reasons why the movie works well and why it is a challenge at times. I'm sure I wouldn't have those kinds of movie experiences without your show. I recently left my full-time job to go back to school, so my donation is pretty small. But I want to send this email so you know my appreciation is worth so much more than that and accept this as an IOU for a future Mm. reoccurring donation.
3: Great stuff. We appreciate your appreciation. Best of luck at school, Liston, and thank you for the kind words. Robert in Palo Alto, California, is a new $5 a month donor to the show. He says he was a loyal reader of The Dissolve since its start in the summer of 2013, and the site's incredible community led me through my transition into full-blown cinephile. They also turned me on to film spotting, which has been a constant companion on my commute ever since. When The Dissolve had to shut down for financial reasons after only two years, I desperately wished that I could have contributed to its future in some small way beyond my page views. I was overjoyed to hear that these crucial voices were back together for the next picture show. And out of gratitude for all of my favorite film critics now existing under the same film-spotting umbrella, I'm putting my money where my mouth was. Here's to many more years of deep, thoughtful conversations about film. So, $5 a month donation. It's sounding like I have to split this up. We're going to have to share this
1: with... The folks from The Next Picture Show, and there's a like bit. 17 of them. I know. <laughs> I don't know how far it's going to go, Robert, but we will do our best. Another $5 a month donor here is Mark Rosma from Victoria, British Columbia. I've only been a listener for about six months now, but that's plenty long enough to see, or I guess hear, the value of what you guys do. This week, with the addition of The Next Picture Show, I decided it was about time I started paying my dues to the film spotting family. Since the last time I listened to The Dissolve folks without paying them, they decided to run out of money and shut down my go-to film site please share this with them if you can. I know it's not much, but I hope it helps. And if it's any consolation, I'm Canadian. So for me, it's actually more like $6.50 per month donation. (laughs) Thanks
3: a lot, Mark. And yes, it does sound like we're going to be giving multiple donations this month to the fine folks over at The Next Picture Show. We hope you have checked out that podcast. We just got done talking a little bit about Spotlight. They really had a nice discussion about that film and how it relates to All the President's Men as part of their debut two episodes. If you want to learn more about that show, can find it in iTunes now or you could just go to nextpictureshow.net and we'll throw a plug to our very generous listener Mark in Victoria, B.C. His website rosemania.ca is a collection of long-form non-fiction essays which are mostly about film and that's Mania.ca. Thank you Mark, Robert Liston and all of our monthly donors who really do keep us doing what we're doing
2: I'm a white noise song a when that whips around no part of any storm Holding to everything that's coming
1: on. Hi, this is Andrew Stanton. I'm the director of films like Finding Nemo and Wally and you are listening to film spotting. 17 October,
0: third examination of Dudley Heinsbergen. All right, Dudley. make yours like mine. Raleigh's next book was on the subject of a condition he called Heinsbergen Syndrome.
2: Where's that red one going to go?
3: This is Film Spotting. How stocked with memorable performances is a movie when no. Bill Murray is maybe the sixth or seventh actor you associate with it. That's Murray as Raleigh St. Clair in and Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. And it does help us set up this week's top five dramatic ensemble movies josh i apologize though it helps us set up the top five but it does spoil your list because i know that you just picked five wes anderson movies for your top five i, I which pick did i ruin there with yeah, that clip?
1: I, I would have loved to no i mean royal tenenbaums is probably the only one that genuinely counts maybe darjeeling limited but really yeah, i guess you're I mean, right Steve's well this gets in, in the title rushmore it's all max fisher yeah, this
3: does get into our criteria or criterion here and you can lay yours out but i approached it Along the lines that sounds like you did, where a film like Moonrise Kingdom, like Rushmore, they have a lot of characters mm-hmm. in it, but there is a protagonist, there is someone who the whole story does kind of revolve and resolve around, and so that doesn 't really make it as much of an ensemble movie for me
1: yeah that's that 's pretty much how I thought about it i, I was I was thinking it 's a movie that uses its ensemble to be about something larger. Than any one character's story. Yeah. So kind of saying the same thing, but really the movie's after something bigger than a personal narrative. Right. And we should point out that this shouldn't be confused with comedy ensembles. There's a reason why we are
3: focusing on dramatic ensembles. And part of it is that it goes back to the movie that inspired this list, Spotlight. But also because we have done our top five comedy ensembles. And that really was referring to comedy troops almost. Like the Christopher Guest ensembles where you have recurring Actors and actresses who regularly appear in those movies, Monty Python, would also qualify. So we're not focusing on those type of ensembles, but dramatic ensembles. And there are a lot of movies in our pantheon that some would consider ensemble movies, some might not consider ensemble movies, Josh, if we're applying the criterion that we applied. But Goodfellas, Do the Right Thing, Reservoir Dogs... Pulp Fiction, Glengarry Glen Ross, The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, Out of Sight. Again, we could quibble with some of those. For me, a movie like Goodfellas is very much Henry Hill's yeah, movie. Yeah, for sure. It has a huge cast and a great cast, but that doesn't really make it fit the definition for me. That said, a lot of good movies we had to kick
1: out because they're in the pantheon. What did you settle on? What's your number five? My number five is Freaks, which is Todd Browning's infamous 1932 drama about circus sideshow performers. One of us. One That's us. the one. They're portrayed by real life conjoined twins, a bearded lady, little people, and others, and they exact revenge on the trapeze beauty and strongman who devised a ruse to cheat one of them out of their money. The sense of ensemble is key here thematically, I think, because the sanctity of this group of outsiders—it's one of the movie's main things it's interested in. I mean, that first scene that we see a ringmaster talking about the performers, he says, offend one, offend them all. So it's a threat that's carried out in the narrative. Much of the movie is made up of these vignettes of the performers going through their daily routines. And I think that's a main sign that people debate this quite a bit about freaks, whether this is empathetic or whether it's exploitation. And I think the fact that the films spend so much time on these daily routines, Browning is allowing them to perform their acts matter-of-factly rather than as part of the circus's sideshow. So Prince Randian, he's billed here as the living torso. He gets this scene where he's rolling his own cigarette, even though he doesn't have limbs, but he's doing it during this casual conversation. So it's not as an act. So I do think that's key. Now, the movie is mostly famous for its jarring revenge sequence at the end. Don't spoil it. (laughs) And even that, though, is filmed with an attention-to ensemble. So there are shots of each of the performers as they're approaching their victims through the mud and the rain. Now, you quoted the most famous line of dialogue. Yeah, but only because (laughs) I've seen Robert Altman's The Player, not because I've seen Freaks. But here's the interesting thing about that is where it comes in the film, it's earlier and it's actually as an invitation. It's at a wedding party where they're saying this to the trapeze artist to join their ensemble. But when she rejects them with revulsion, that's that's when the tragic events Hmm. begin to be set in motion. Really interesting film. Yeah, it's
3: probably a little bit Funny that I said you shouldn't spoil the ending of Freaks. It's only what eighty years old it or something is. like that, and the
1: ending is what most people know. So. Yeah,
3: again, I really only know that line because of the way it comes up in Altman's The Player, and I bring that up only because Robert Altman is one of those directors who is probably best known for making ensemble movies which is probably a shame then that he's not in my top five. I don't know if he made... You don't have him on your list. He should be in there, but there's a ton of directors for some reason I left on the outside looking in. So we get to my number five, and the title of your number five, Freaks, very much could be an alternate title for this film. It is the 1998 Todd Solon's movie, Happiness. Happiness. It was my intro to Solon's. I actually saw it before Welcome to the Dollhouse, though that was the movie that kind of put him on the map. You know it's an ensemble movie when you look at the IMDb plot summary, and it says, The lives of many individuals connected by the desire for happiness, often from sources usually considered dark or evil. So you get that connection, the lives of many individuals, clearly. And this is the best way I tried to sum it up. You have Jane Addams. Laura Flynn Boyle, and Cynthia Stevenson as sisters. Cynthia Stevenson also happens to be in Robert Altman's The Player. John Lovitz, briefly. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Dylan Baker appear as the men who are dating or married to or lusting after those three sisters. Ben Gazzara and Louise Lasser show up as their parents. And they all are interconnected either because they're family or just thematically or In terms of the plot and story, you have someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character who's making obscene phone calls to Laura Flynn Boyle, who is also a patient of Dylan Baker's, who is a psychiatrist and pedophile in the film. I haven't seen it since 1998. I was a young film student. I saw it at the music box here in Chicago, and I remember then finding it legitimately shocking in its portrayal of sex and, frankly, the grotesque nature of a lot of what we see. But at the same time, I remember really laughing at it, and not just out of the discomfort, though sometimes that was there, but often out of just genuine dark comedy. And I think it probably speaks to more who I was in 1998, how much art, how much cinema I still needed to be exposed to, that happiness was as provocative as it was for me at the time. Not offensive, but certainly audacious and challenging. I wonder if there are any listeners out there who have seen it recently who felt similarly about it or maybe thought it was kind of passe and not offensive at all. There's a scene from it with Philip Seymour Hoffman that actually made my top five Philip Seymour Hoffman scenes. But I love all the performances in this film. Certainly none of these characters, none of these actors really get any more weight than anyone else because it's about the cumulative effect of these characters and their lives. And really Solon's is putting before us some stories and some people that we know exist in the world, but I think we all want to pretend... We don't encounter on a daily basis, but this movie makes us confront that.
2: Helen, so what's gonna happen to that woman who killed you doorman? I don't know, Mom. It's so sad. She's all alone. I just wish I had gotten to know her better. We might have found we had something in common.
0: Maybe you'll write a poem about her. <laughs>
2: I'm so sorry, but don't worry. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. But I'm not laughing.
1: To your point, I'd forgotten about happiness to consider it for this list, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. All right, I have an Altman pick here at number four, and Nashville is probably the right one to go with, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to choose that one. I'm going to go with a prairie home. Companion. It's from 2006, and the reason I like it for this list is it has that bonus meta quality. It's about an ensemble pulling off a show. This is the fictional backstage variation on Garrison Keillor's long-running public radio variety show of the same name. Now, Keillor wrote the screenplay, and he does appear here, but like the radio show itself, he's mostly there to showcase the talents of others. And here's who we've got. Meryl Streep, Lily Tomlin, Virginia Madsen, John C. Riley maya rudolph kevin klein woody harrelson that isn't enough to convince you lindsey lohan too Adam, <laughs> that's true yeah i had forgotten and she's she was in, this. in the movie she's not bad she's not but bad any movie with john c Riley and woody harrelson
3: as singing cowboys how about can't that can that bad. how about that
1: hey dusty yeah lefty
3: what do you get when you cross holy water with castor oil i
2: don't know lefty what do you get a religious movement Hey, Lefty, what did the elephant say to the naked man? What'd he say? It's cute, but can you really breathe through that thing? Come on. Bad jokes, Lord, I love Bad jokes, can't get enough
1: of them. The conceit here is that this is going to be the last performance before new corporate ownership pulls the plug on the show. So everyone's working together to create this. It's a really tender mood in this movie. There's melancholy. There's nostalgia here, too. I'm probably giving into nostalgia a little bit by uh, making this pick. I didn't grow up on country music, so maybe that's why I didn't go with Nashville here, as great of a film as it is. I did grow up, though, with my parents listening to A Prairie Home Companion. I want to say, I think I remember it was like Saturday Nights or something like hmm. that. So giving it a spot on this list.
3: Yeah, I don't know if I can forgive you putting A Prairie Home Companion ahead of Nashville or Shortcuts as well. Another but, option, yep. But... I am actually a big fan of A Prairie Home Companion. Got a very favorable review on the show when it came out. For my number four, I'm going back a year from Happiness in 1998 to 1997. This is a film with a great, big ensemble cast, including Danny DeVito. Kim Basinger, who I believe won an Oscar for her performance, David Strathern, James Cromwell, a couple of that guys in Ron Rifkin and Paul Guilfoyle. The movie, of course, is L.A. Confidential. And the reason why I picked it for this list isn't because of that supporting cast as good as they are, but because of the three stars and those three main storylines where we've got three performers who I realize looking back over their filmographies today, Josh, were all at different points in their careers. You've got Kevin Spacey, who had broken out just in the year or two prior in The Usual Suspects and Seven in 1995. He, would of course, hit it bigger in 1999, just a couple of years later with American Beauty, but he was a known commodity at that point, playing Jack Vincennes, this cop who is famous for being the model for a cop on a TV show, and he very much plays up that fact in his personality. You've got Russell Crowe as Bud White just breaking out. He'd done Virtuosity and The Quick and the Dead at that point, but was a relative unknown in Hollywood, certainly In mainstream America, the Insider and Gladiator were still coming for him. And then you've got Guy Pierce as Edmund Exley. And that was his first big role. Complete unknown to me at that point. And I do think it's such great casting because Exley is the one character who isn't supposed to have any baggage to him whatsoever. We have no prior relationship to Guy Pierce. So we have to completely form our opinion of him based on his actions. That's all we can go off of. He seems like a do-gooder. He seems like an honest cop. And then kind of, oh, wait, maybe he's not so honest. And actually what doing good means to him is doing whatever he has to do for the good of his career. He becomes a really interesting and complex character. And we see how these three characters all converge on the same case. I think one of the real pleasures of LA Confidential for me is watching that convergence and their begrudging respect for each other. You see the transformations they undergo as characters, primarily in how those three actors relate to each other and with each other they all get their big scenes i mean there's the classic rollo tomasi scene there's exley's crack about a hooker being cut to look like lana turner the best joke in the movie which kevin spacey is also part of and bud white who confronts a man beating his wife early in the film and just has some great lines and puts that man in his place the way we'd all like to put a thug like that in his place you'll
0: we'll be out in a year and a half i'll get cozy with your parole officer you touch her again i'll have you violated on a kitty raper beef you know what they do to kitty rapers in (sighs) quentin
3: I just love Crow in that movie in L.A. Confidential. He might be my favorite performance in the film just because he's a cerebral thug or at least an introspective thug and commands any room he walks into. I think Russell Crowe, I think
1: all three of them are great in L.A. Confidential. Yeah, it really was getting the right stars at the right time. So that that means that three can be an ensemble if we have to put a number on it. Yeah, yeah, I think you have to
3: have at least three different
1: leads. And I think they are all co-leads in that film. All right, my number three, I'm going to classic Hollywood with Stagecoach. And this was, you know, such a breakout role for John Wayne Mm -hmm. that I think we tend to forget it's very much an ensemble film. People are already sending in their emails. They're typing them up right now, Josh. No, you know, this was suggested by a number of folks on Twitter. And it was then where I thought, you know. That, that's right, when you think about the story, it really is an ensemble. Wayne is the Ringo kid, but he's just one passenger, and he's a latecomer, even, in the film, uh, on this dangerous ride that's uh, heading out through Apache territory. This is John Ford, of course, from 1939. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I want to quote from an IndieWire piece by Jessica Kang that I found that speaks directly to the ensemble. She says, the cast truly rises to the occasion. It's astonishing to witness the sublimation of so many character archetypes, from Dallas, the the hooker with the heart of gold played by Claire Trevor and arguably the best female performance Ford ever elicited to the Ringo kid, the unexpectedly noble bad guy hero played by Wayne to the best of Ford's many drunken Irish sidekicks. It's helped by the egalitarian tendencies of the screenplay in which each of the stage coaches, occupants gets their own story. Even the traveling salesman and his deer stalker, that's Donald Meek and the untrustworthy gambler, John Carradine, who has a perverse code That sees him shun Dallas, but instinctively try to protect the respectable, pregnant colonel's wife, played by Louise Platt. I did consider another Ford film for this list, too, How Green Was My Valley. I think that functions very much as an ensemble piece, but I listed that one not too long ago. So this time, stagecoach. If you were having any
3: issues or any doubts about my last choice with only three leads in that ensemble, I'll give you 12. I'll give you 12 (laughs) 12 angry men. Josh, which I know, I know you love. You're just trying to get me into trouble. I really am. 1957, Sidney Lumet's movie, of course, starring, among other people, Henry Fonda. He certainly emerges as the hero. He was the only real movie star in that movie. All the others were New York theater and TV actors, guys like Martin Balsam, Lee J. Cobb, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Jack Warden, of course, as well. But if you have 12 characters stuck in a room, everybody is going to get their screen time and their lines. And that is the conceit of 12 Angry Men, that they are there deliberating this case, a case that we only hear about through their arguing about it. And it's easy to say that 12 Angry Men is a film that's trying to make a point, maybe to some didactically so, about the American justice system or about America in general. Ebert, in his review of it, his four-star review, by the way, Josh, he thinks it's a great movie. He says, the principle of reasonable doubt, the belief that a defendant is innocent until proven guilty is one of the most enlightened elements of our Constitution, although many Americans have had difficulty in accepting it. So there's that element to the film, but he also goes on to say quite correctly that it's a film where tension comes from personality conflict, dialogue, and body language, not action, where the defendant has been glimpsed only in a single brief shot where logic, emotion, and prejudice struggle to control the field. I think really it's American, for lack of a better term, in the way it pits together 12 men who certainly wouldn't qualify as diverse in the way we think of it now, though. There is one juror, juror number 11, who is an immigrant, but they all do bring their own unique experiences, their unique prejudices and perspectives to this legal proceeding. And they're thrown together and they're forced to coexist with each other and not only coexist, but come to some kind of a consensus. I think it's a movie that exposes America at its worst to showcase what can be America at its best, and as Ebert suggests, it's really subtly artistic in the use of production design, framing, lenses, lighting, and editing. For me, Twelve Angry Men was a no-brainer for dramatic ensembles.
0: What made you change your vote? He didn't change his vote. I did. Oh, fine. Would you like me to tell you why? No, I wouldn't like you to tell me why. Well, I'd like to make it clear anyway, if you don't mind. Do we have to listen to this? The man wants to talk. Thank you. This gentleman has been standing alone against us. Now, he doesn't say the boy is not guilty. He just isn't sure. Well, it's not easy to stand alone against the ridicule of others. So he gambled for support, and I gave it to him. I respect his motives. The boy in trial is probably guilty, but uh, I want to hear more. Right now, the vote is 10 to 2. I'm talking here. You have no right to leave this room. can't move. hear you. He never will.
1: Let's sit down. Are you sure Henry Fonda's the hero in that? I, I couldn't quite tell. It was hmm. such a complicated film. Well, the movie does I can... allow him to bide his time, Josh. <laughs> okay. All right. Number two, the rules of the game. I could also have gone with Jean Renoir's grand illusion, but I think rules of the game is even more of an ensemble piece, especially... In the sense of what I talked about at the start, how it's telling this larger story that's beyond its characters. It's set at a weekend gathering at an aristocratic estate. There's this French aviator, an Austrian expatriate, a marquis. also involves a game warden and a maid. One of the highlights of the movie is when this entire ensemble is shown during a masquerade party and all these various affairs are revealed, revenge is sought, and it's taking place at the same time that this stage review is going on. That Maybe sounds a little bit like a farce, but it really isn't. Uh, the movie is, is funny. It's funny when the action is happening, but it also has this air of tragedy that uh, lingers or sets in later. And you especially feel that during another sequence, the metaphorical rabbit hunt that takes place. So I guess you could almost call this uh, a form of sympathetic satire. And Renoir uses, uses the entire ensemble to evoke that. Great film great choice. My number 2 is
3: a similar classic. It is Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, which is a film that centers around a bandit, a samurai and a wife, and then you also have a priest and a woodcutter who open and close the film and of course the whole film is really about their variations, their versions of One incident, one crime that happened out in the forest where a bandit rapes a woman and kills her husband, and we get the perspective, the recollection of all three of those different participants in that scene. Toshiro Mifune's in this film, Takashi Shimura's in this film, who we know, of course, from Akiru and other Kurosawa movies. They are actors who certainly commanded the lead role, played the protagonist in a lot of Kurosawa films here. They're just part of the ensemble and the ensemble is so crucial to it, of course, Josh, because in the end there's really no clear resolution. There is no clear truth other than the subjective truth of each one of these characters, so Kurosawa
1: treats them appropriately along those lines. All right, I'm going to go back to 1939 for my number 1. It's The Women. Can I just list the cast and leave it at that? You've got Norma Shearer. Yeah. Rosalind Russell. Paulette Goddard, Joan Fontaine, and Joan Crawford. I mean, there's your number one pretty much. Now— These, I like to think of as the original Mean Girls, and they are a bunch of privileged wives. They're alleged friends. But really, they spend a lot of time just causing trouble for each other. Norma Shearer is maybe the lead character among them. She's the good wife and most of the drama circles around her. But in the end, it's interesting how you're almost rooting for Joan Crawford's other woman. I mean, there's at least an honesty in the way that uh, this is how the movie puts it, her eyes run up and down men like a searchlight. She's sort of the most honest one of the bunch.
2: Look, what, what did you expect me to do? Burst into tears and beg you to forgive me? Isn't that what you really came in here for, Mrs. Haynes? Not after seeing you. You're even more typical than I dared hope. Well, honey, that goes double. Now, look, get this. I'd break up your snug little roost if I could, but I don't stand a chance. Oh, well, don't think it's because your husband isn't crazy about me because he's the kind that lets that old-fashioned sentiment put the Indian sign on him, and that's all. I'm glad you understand the strength of sentiment, Miss Allen, because its beauty is something you'll never know. This happens to be my room, Mrs. Haynes. It's yours, yes, for the time being, like everything else you've got. May I suggest if you're dressing to please Stephen? Not that one. He doesn't like such obvious effects. Thanks for the tip. But when anything I wear doesn't please Stephen, I take it off.
1: George Cooker is the director here. Anita Luce and Jane Murphin did the screenplay with the help, I think, from F. Scott. Fitzgerald, And despite all of these strong personalities and presences on the screen, they're really able to weave them into the rhythm of the movie. So ultimately, this is it's more than a melodrama involving one marriage. It becomes this portrait of a a venal social structure. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's a companion piece to the rules of the game. My number one is a movie that could be called maybe The Men, Josh, Ben
3: Affleck, Matthew McConaughey, Wiley Wiggins. Cole Hauser, Adam Goldberg, Rory Cochran, Nikki Kat. There are some great women in this movie as well, including Joey Lauren Adams and Parker Posey. I am talking about Richard Linklater's classic, Dazed and Confused. I think if I just list those names for you, and if you know this movie, and I think to know it is to love it, I don't know anyone who doesn't really love Dazed and Confused, though now I know the emails are going to flood in. I say those names, and you can instantly picture them exactly how they look and sound in Dazed and Confused. That's how memorable they are and how perfectly envisioned they are by those performers and Linklater. And it's hard to come up with things to say about this movie at this point. So I went to seek another source and I found a writer who I love and who wrote about it for the Criterion Collection, Chuck Klosterman. And what he had to say about the movie so mirrors my experience with Dazed and Confused that I wanted to share it. He says that he was so excited to see this movie and by the time he saw it, When he was in college, I think he said he was a freshman in college on VHS, he was actually a little bit disappointed. He said it just didn't seem realistic. It was like a cinematic caricature. Everything about the fashion, the hazing, the idea of teenagers in a car being shot at for wrecking a mailbox, it all seemed a little bit ridiculous. The movie inside his brain, he writes, was better than Dazed and Confused. He goes on. Obviously, I've watched Days and Confused many, many times since that first afternoon, and it has improved with almost every viewing. And now seems like a completely different film. And as I've grown older, I've deduced why. Days and Confuse is not a movie about how things were. It's a movie about how things are remembered. This film doesn't illustrate what it was actually like to be in semi-rural Texas in 1976, but I'm sure it evokes how that time and place. Must retrospectively feel to anyone who was actually there, like so many of Linklater's movies, Days and Confused is about how memory operates and what memories mean. When I recall my most insane high school experiences, it's difficult to untangle what truly happened, what seems retrospectively plausible, and what I pretend to remember in my mind. No film has ever combined those three realities as adroitly as Days to Confuse. But that's not something you can realize by watching it once. Mythology requires repetition.
1: Three,
2: one
1: to go for rickford
2: what have been happening it's a bummer about your party man what can i say it's beyond me. delivery guy brick
1: yeah it's a mood piece right dazed and confused is in a lot of ways sure honorable mention for me okay those are our top five
3: dramatic ensemble movies i guess though is dazed and confused really a drama now that i think about it my whole list could be folly because my number one is kind of a comedy i would describe it as a comedy would you we got to start well, over. Well, this list was vetted by our co-producer, Sam Van Halgren, so All right. blame him for allowing me to pick Days to Confuse. What about some other honorable mentions? I've got mentions?
1: something you can sub in easily. We I spent do, too. I've got about 50 choices. Fast and Furious. I've got seven of them to pick from. Uh-huh. You, lo- They're a family, Adam. Mm. You love that no, about those Vin movies. Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel's the lead. He's always <laughs> the lead. <laughs> <laughs> he's the right. alpha, Josh. Well, fine. If you don't want that, some nostalgia picks for me would be Stand By Me, Breakfast Club, Dead Poets Society, Sin City, the first great one. That would work. Best Years of Our Lives, I thought about. How about a movie that has Fellowship in the title, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring? How about not? Come on. You don't even like that one? <laughs> no, I do. That's pre-Hobbit, Adam. I do. I know. <laughs> From Here to Eternity, I thought about, speaking of David O. Russell, has got a movie coming out, I Heart Huckabees. Where do you stand on I Heart Huckabees? I like I Heart, okay, Heart Huckabees. Good. I mean, it's bizarre and twisted, it's, it's but bizarre. Also I appreciate that. Fun as an ensemble picture. A Hitchcock here, Lifeboat. And then we did do Top 5 Movie Teams. That was on episode 492. I saw a number of those suggested by listeners on Twitter. The Wild Bunch, The Seven Samurai. I had on my list Team America World Police that... Could have counted for no. That's a comedy, so that it's wouldn't count. Really, it. a comedy. Yeah. That's blatantly a comedy, though. IMDb does list days and
3: Confused as comedy, not even drama as an alternate option. Just comedy this break, this week off couldn't come soon enough. (laughs) How about then a movie that certainly is not a comedy, United 93. The Usual Suspects is another movie I considered. What about your beloved and mine, Padra Panchali? I don't think that there's a clear lead in that film, really. I thought about that. Did you?
1: And I guess you could make it work, but it's hard to separate it from the fact that it's the Opu trilogy.
3: I agree. But that first film, of all of them, would qualify. I thought about a movie like Alien. I know we've talked about it a lot. It becomes Ripley's movie, but don't feel like it's Ripley's movie for at least the first half of it, though it has been a while since I've seen the whole film. Crimes and Misdemeanors, among my favorite Woody Allen films. There's certainly some other Woody Allen ensembles we could talk about. And just what about some of these other directors who, as we hinted at at the beginning of the segment, commonly dwell in the realm of ensemble? Mike Lee, movies like Another Year, Topsy Turvy, All or Nothing, Secrets and Lies. Steven Soderbergh with a film like Traffic, Ocean's Eleven. Probably a comedy. Contagion would be another one I don't love, but another ensemble movie. Altman, of course, we mentioned with shortcuts in Gosford Park and Tarantino, whether it's films that are in the Pantheon like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs or Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. I'm not sure Django totally works i feel like django is the hero of that film but again loves those big casts loves to play with a lot of different characters i have 10 other really good films i could probably fit into my top five here so rich subject matter again that is our top five dramatic ensemble send us your picks or any other comments about the show to
1: feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 on Twitter, you can find Adam at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com/slash/FilmSpotting. Over at FilmSpotting.net, you can find
3: over ten years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, take a moment and vote in the current FilmSpotting poll. Your most anticipated non-Star Wars holiday. Spectacle. And please check out our sister shows in the Film Spotting Podcast Network, Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, and The Next Picture Show. You can learn all about both of those at FilmSpotting.net as well. Out in wide release, The Hunger Games Mocking Part 2. So sad. A disappointment indeed for us. The Night Before, this is a comedy from 50 50 director Jonathan Levine reuniting with that film stars Joseph Gordon Levitt and Seth Rogen. The Secret in Their Eyes, a remake of the Oscar winning 2009 Argentinian thriller with Julie Roberts, Nicole Kidman, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. It's directed by Billy Ray, who did Shattered Glass and Breach. Out in limited release here in Chicago, Laurie Anderson's Heart of a Dog is playing at the Music Box. That was recommended by me on last week's show and added to our Golden Brick Award shortlist. And speaking of the Golden Brick, next week we will have our Thanksgiving Golden Brick preview show. The following week, we'll be back in our normal format. We're going to do a blind spotting review of Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. It's a Hitchcock film that we both need to see. Plus, my conversation with the director of Hitchcock Truffaut, Kent Jones, and a top five we've been meaning to get around to for a long time, a perfect tie-in with that subject matter, our top five
1: movie books. Film Spotting is produced by Indigo Cronin and Laporous Pyramont. <laughs> Without Laporous and Indigo Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from The Dead Weather. It's from their album Dodge and Burn. More information is at thedeadweather.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
2: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
1: are Flickerman just doesn't hold up to those others. No. He's pretty restrained. So,
3: for the record, mm-hmm. Sam Van Halgren, of course it has to spit out a name that I can't even pronounce. Skeen Spectral. S-K-E-N-E. That's disappointing. Yeah. But Joe Dessau, okay. Golden Joe Deseau has the best one ever. I mean, we really should just start calling him this from now on. He's Indigo Cronin. <laughs> sure he is. <laughs> You could do this all night, couldn't you? I really could. Sextus Spottiswood. That's how you must refer to me from now on.
1: What's mine again?
3: Arrow Lick Privick. Lick (laughs) Lick, Privick. I told you. It's so good. And Arrow. Kind of shudder. Arrow is E E R O. Not Arrow. Of course course it's E E R O. Arrow Lick Privick. Boy.